Hello, I'm Brett Terpstra, and you're listening to Systematic. My guest this week is Mike Schramm, a senior research manager at Interpret in Los Angeles, working on providing qualitative research for the video game industry. So, Mike, how you doing? I'm doing good. Hello. Thank you for having me on this uh, this second uh, season, this this return. I'm excited. Yeah. To have it so back. Um, you were the very first guest on Systematic eight, eight years ago, almost exactly eight years ago. It's been a long time. I was very flattered when you asked me to be the first guest on the very first episode, and I'm now also very flattered, even more flattered, I would say, to be asked back to be the <laughs> first guest on the second season. So I think it's great. And it, it's interesting because, uh, uh, you know, I, I, uh, we both worked on TWAW for a long time, and I don't know if you were like this, but I was like – I put a lot of stuff out there in the world and like was very active online. And lately I have not been. And I've also been like, man, interesting. I, I wonder if I went back online or if I started putting more stuff out there, what it would look like or how it would work. So I'm excited that you're sort of tackling this again in a, in a with more energy. Hopefully more energy. I it Okay, first I have to I have to make a confession. Okay. I let Merlin Mann slip in before you in the lineup. Oh, so okay. you're actually <laughs> season two, episode two. That's fine. Merlin Mann will draw much more of an audience than I will. So that that makes complete sense. That's he also <laughs> he also just scheduled before you. So I said, oh, okay. well, he's he's very he's probably more productive than I do. So that makes sense. <laughs> he's able to sneak in and drop in the schedule there. But yeah, I took I took it was just going to be a couple months. I just needed a break. Um, felt like yeah. felt like I was putting a lot of effort into making shows and I, I wasn't. I wasn't loving it anymore. And yeah. then that couple months turned into over a year before I finally got the bug again and thought, you know, I, I really miss doing that. So it felt good to get, to get back to it. Yeah. Yeah. I took a very specific hiatus because, uh, so whatever, nine years ago now, whenever I, right when I left TUAW or right when I walked away from blogging, I was looking for, well, I was blogging with you for a while and I was writing on TWW and writing on Joystick and, and a couple of other places. And then I was like, this is great and I love this job and this is awesome, but I need benefits. I need and I need insurance. <laughs> like I need I need some sort of setup here. So I started looking around for a job and I looked around for a job for a long time. And I finally found a job in uh it, it, with a company called EDAR doing research for video games, because that's what I've been writing for about for so long. And back then I was like, well. I'll just kind of like go away a little bit, but I'll still have Twitter and I'll still kind of keep in touch with people. But then, and so I, and I, I changed my website as well. So right around 2016, then uh, when Trump got elected, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like the internet really shook me up a lot. Like it really sure. made me like, I was like kind of shaken by that whole thing, by how Facebook was used and how social networking was used. And I was like, kind of like very shocked by it. And it was interesting to me because it's something that I had, and it's about three years after I started stopped writing online, basically. But I was like, I really had invested in being online, and I invested in social networking. I had shared, met a bunch of great people, including you, through all those different sites and all that networking stuff. And I was really struck by what what had happened in that election and what is still happening today, like what's still going on with all that stuff. And I sort of stepped away, and I actually deleted a bunch of the old archives, not deleted them, but took them all offline and like redid my website, where it was very simple and straightforward. But I agree that like recently I've been like 
I think there is a place or, or a way for me to be more public and be online. And I've been thinking about like maybe a Patreon podcast or just a blog or something like that. Like I've been thinking about coming back too. So uh, it's interesting. I wonder if that's a larger theme or a larger thing that's going on. But well, it's it's a weird time with all of the protests and the pandemic. It's a weird time mm-hmm. to feel like yeah, my voice needs to be heard. <laughs> like, exactly. Why do I think I matter right now? I I don't know. It's not. I I'm not doing it for. I don't know what I'm doing it for. Now you're well, making me uh, question I, my motives. No, no, no. I don't mean to make you question your <laughs> motives. But I have been questioning my motives as well. Like I actually – I literally have written a blog post that I was going to post on my site. And I also had that same feeling of like, well, how necessary is this? Like do right. I need to be a, another dude blogging online? Do I need to say this thing? Do people even care? Like do people even – know me does anyone care about the day the old days like me or is there even because when i first started blogging no one did know me and i just did it because it was something i really enjoyed doing i really liked it and i still like doing it but i just don't i don't want to i don't know i want to i do want to reapproach it in this in in you know i want to get back to blogging and i want to get back to sharing stuff but i don't want to do it in the way that i did it when i was younger which is just get everything out there and get my name out there and get in front of everybody so i'm trying to do it in a more interesting way but I'm, i'm really kind of struggling with that. Like, how do I do it in a way that I think is valuable, that I think is helpful, but, uh, but, you know, make sure that I, I make sure that, you know, let other people's voices speak and, and make sure that we're going in the right direction and not just like rebuilding the same thing. I don't know. I've been struggling with these issues a lot lately too. So it's interesting too. I was, when I saw your, your invite to do this, I was like, Oh, awesome. Uh, because I've also been thinking the same thing. So, yeah. But that said, your work has always been really helpful and really, you know, all the stuff that you've released and all the stuff that you've done has always been very much focused on improving people's lives and making it better. So I think you're more justified. That's very kind of you. You're doing, I think, but all right, then so my just thing, we'll see. Go ahead. The, uh, the topic that I think is the most obvious and also the most intriguing to me that comes up when uh, reading about you is gaming. I feel like that's you live and breathe gaming. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of fascinating to me because like we started gaming at the same time in the same age. Like for me, it was on a monochrome PC or Mm -hmm. no, I guess my first computer was a PC junior, which did have 16 colors. Um, Mm. But like we started with Oregon Trail and I was into Jumpman Mm -hmm. and I played a lot of games back then, but I didn't, like, I never got a Nintendo. Like, that's where it ended mm. for me. I never had a Game mm-hmm. Boy. I, I wanted a Game Boy, but that wasn't happening in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, I play a lot of games on my phone now, but I don't have the relationship with it that I think anyone who would call themselves a gamer does. So I'm curious about the relationship that you have with gaming. Uh, it's sure. obviously been a meaningful part of your life. So tell me a bit about what, what what exactly it means to you? For sure. So I started on a Tandy color computer. My dad uh, brought one home from one day from work. He, he bought it from a friend at work. He worked at uh, McDonnell Douglas, which is now Boeing in St. Louis, although he's, he's long since retired. Uh, and my family, what's interesting is that I was adopted. Uh, I, my, my family, we have three kids, me and my brother and my sister. Uh, I was the only one who was adopted. And then my parents had my brother and my sister biologically afterwards. 
And for some reason, I have always been super interested in gaming and no one else in the family has ever had the same interests. So I think I think that's part of it is from the very beginning, I was fascinated by games and fascinated by computers and like technology. And for some reason, I don't know if it is just nature or nurture or whatever happened, but I kind of staked out that space in my family. And I think looking back, I'm like, that's why, you know, one reason why I was so engaged with it and so interested in it. I, I tell the story sometimes my my parents uh, very, when I was very young, my parents were like, we understand that you like games uh, and we support you for that, but we are never going to buy you games or <laughs> we're never going to support that because we think it's a waste of time, which maybe sounds mean. Maybe that's, you know, looking back sounds mean, but, but, at that, but at, what that did in me is made me like, how can I get this? How can I, how can I get into gaming? I bought a Game Boy on my own. I've saved up money and picked it up when I was really young and just loved that, played games nonstop on it. Um, and then as I, as I've gotten older, obviously, like when I started blogging, I was blogging specifically about games to start. And so then it became like, you know, I, I started working as a writer first, but at quickly, as I worked as a freelance writer, you know, I, I started working for a, a paper in Chicago called, um, new city Chicago, which I don't think it's an all weekly. I don't know if he's still going on. I think the website's gone. I think they're all done now, but, uh, but I, I would go around and I would write about a bunch of different events, but the, but one day I pitched, uh, there was a, a game studio. So I was also working at a PR firm in downtown Chicago and I was writing press releases for them. And then, uh, in, on the floor right above was a studio called wide load games, which is a former, uh, owner of Bungie was running that studio. And I went to the newspaper that I was interning at and I was like, Hey, this studio is here. They're Chicago based. Like, can I write a story about the Chicago based game studio? And they said, sure. Great. And that's the first time I remember that I was like, oh, I could write about games. Like I could just specifically write about games the whole time and really kind of combine my career and my gaming stuff. And then the older I've gotten, the more I see, you know, gaming is connected to psychology. It's connected to who we are as human beings. It's, you know, it's all about perceptions. And uh, I'm reading Thinking Fast and Slow recently and and getting into in, into the, all that type of thinking. But yeah, and then, it, you know, in my work, so I I... I when I left TUAW, when I left uh, Joystick, I started working for a firm called EDAR. It's called Electronic Entertainment Design and Research. And when I first got hired there, I did what we called mock reviews. So I basically wrote about what the press would say about games. So I, you know, before a game came out, I was able to give them a heads up on like, this is what the press will think about it. And this is what people will think. And I got very good at like looking at a game and telling what could work and what wouldn't work and how things would go, you know, how people would connect with it and how people would understand it. And that led me to just like, you know, evolutionarily, like what drives us? What's our what's our interest? What, you know, in a game, if you want to show the way forward, you put a light on it. And that's such a core evolutionary thing. Like we go towards the light. We, we go towards spaces that are more well lit. And like that stuff that really got me thinking about like, well, how do we connect up to, to what humans think and all that stuff? So. So, yeah, gaming started as something I was super fascinated by as a kid and something that I just couldn't get enough of. And over time, it has become more of the study of like how how do people interact both with each other and with the, whatever they see? Like, how do they interact with the world? How do our perceptions govern what we choose to do and how we choose to go? And I don't know. Maybe that's too big, but I like thinking no. of those big terms for Did, sure. So, so when you at the point where you combined your professional life and your love of gaming, it, like for a lot of people that would have gone sideways. Um, you would have ended up liking one or the other less because of the combination, but it sounds like that combination actually just strengthened your love of gaming. 
Yeah, I think what I was able to do because I started, so I actually was working at retail when I first started writing for Wow Insider. Wow Insider is the first blog that I started writing for, and that was within the AOL group there. Um, and I was working retail during the day, and I was going home at night and writing. So it was like, it was part of the fun. Part of the fun was going home and writing every night. Like I would think about stories or think about things to write during the day, and then I would go home and write. So that was really beneficial that it wasn't like my main job to begin with. Sure. Like it was sort of a hobby that built up. And then I think the other thing is that over time, I I just, I built it up very gradually. So initially I was writing for Wow Insider in the evenings and working retail during the day. Then I was able to work on two different blogs, Wow Insider and TWW, and that gave me enough to like go full-time freelance and just work on my own. And then when I left those blogs, I was like, well, I love blogging. I love this job. It's just that I need health insurance. So I, I, I really had the time to look for a job that I liked and look for a company that I liked. And that's when I found EDAR. I actually had applied to five or six different places before, and either I didn't want to work there or they didn't want me to work there. So I think that the benefit of having, and I know it's a benefit, and speaking of voices, I know it's a privileged position to be in for sure. And I'm very lucky to be in the position that I'm in. Um, but but I, I've been able to like take steps at each point in my career. I've been able to take steps that I really felt were the right steps to take. I almost never have had... The the I've always had the luxury of choosing the next thing to do. I almost never have had to like jump into the next thing to do because I had to jump into it. So yeah, I know that's a very fortunate position to be in. And I but I mean I've also worked as hard as I possibly could for it. But I also know you know who knows I I it's 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 definitely uh, certainly there's probably privilege that I've benefited from in that sense. But that's why I think it's worked so well in terms of being the hobby interesting and also keeping it professional is that I've been able to balance pretty well, like what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you also have, have done a lot of that stuff too. You've, you've made some smart choices about where to go and what to do. And I've made some, I've made some, uh, I had the privilege of, of voluntarily leaving a six figure job. Right. Right. To, That's a privileged thing. It yeah. is. It really is. Like <laughs> to have the option to risk things like that. Um, to have now, that job I, in the first place, yeah, sure. And when I was working retail, I was eating ramen. Like I, I, I saved my money, and yeah. And when I, when I jumped off to to, to be full time freelance, like that was a gutsy thing to do. To say I'm just going to work from home and just write for these blogs the whole time. And as you probably know, working at AOL, there were a couple times where they were like, "We can't really pay you guys this month, and we don't, <laughs> we don't know what your job is going to be like." So I, I've taken risk for sure. But I, I, uh, I don't think, I don't think they ever. Of course, I never wrote so much that I cost a lot for AOL to keep me around as a writer. Mm -hmm. And then once I was actually working on the other side of the blogs, uh, on the development side, yeah, the paychecks are probably a little pay stable. paychecks are really steady there. Um, yeah, good. That's it. But uh, let's see. So this random question came to mind: Did you watch Mythic Quest? I did watch Mythic Quest. Uh, it, that has been interesting. So when I was writing for joystick and writing for TOAW, obviously I was very much on the outside. I was very much writing about stuff as much as possible. And like, I think you and I are also pretty lucky in that we were writing for TOAW right when the iPhone was taking off. And we, we really, I mean, I, I feel like I got a, a front row seat to a really interesting time. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was writing about iPhone games before there was an app store. Like I remember writing a post about like, here's how Apple should handle the app store. And I'm not going to take credit for the app store, but, but certainly I was in a good spot to like share some of that stuff. And we know people at Apple were reading. So I feel really lucky to be able to do that. 
Um, so yes, but then as I moved into the more of the publisher side of things, so I don't, we don't publish games, the company that, so I worked for a company called EDAR. EDAR got bought by NPD, which is kind of a big data Nielsen type competitor. Uh, and I worked for NPD for a couple of years because they had basically acquired EDAR. And then earlier this year, I moved back to LA and I'm currently working for a research company called Interpret. So Interpret is a, a little bit more focused on just video game research. NPD is a, a big company that sells data for a lot of different industries, including books and toys and also like CPG, which is consumer packaged goods and all this other stuff. Um, so I've kind of moved back into games in January and I'm working for this great company in LA called Interpret. We do a lot of great work. Uh, none of the clients I can mention, but they're all on the website. It's all very secret work. But I will say that uh, as I've moved into more of this research role and more of this industry specific role, as opposed to like a journalism role, uh, I have gotten much more insight into how studios work and how things go down like that. I will say that some of this stuff on Mythic Quest is true. There's a lot of ego, obviously, in any creative field, and video games is no exception for sure. Uh, and yes, sexism is, uh, I mean, again, I, I, I say it pretty, pretty, uh, 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 lightly, but, but sexism is a huge issue. You know, Ubisoft has had a, a bunch of problems in the, in the past few weeks here and they're trying to adjust things and make changes as, as best they can. And great, like everyone should. And there certainly are still video game studios out there where sexism runs rampant and, and is a real problem. So, so it's definitely an issue. Uh, I will say too, like, uh, some of it is overblown. I, I think a lot of the, the you know the the people who actually work on art and the people who actually design stuff like they they really want to be creative and they really are devoted to the job and all that stuff but um but no i mean it's pretty dead on i i can't disagree with anything yeah <laughs> with anything in there i really like that megan gans i think she's the uh she's one of the the creators one of the writers on there i think she she brings a great voice to the show too i think i, I, I think uh having that that sort of main character for her seems like a, a great voice in there for too. sure. Go ahead. The uh, the subplot that that I enjoyed the most was the couple that started the game studio with the really dark idea of a game where you couldn't all what was it you like all you could do was run from monsters and you had a flashlight. Right. I don't remember the name of the right. game or the name of the studio, but that the the kind of the the uh, journey of an indie game through becoming a massive hit and losing all creative control. And that, that felt true to me. Like I have no experience on either side of the gaming industry, but that felt, it felt like it was coming from a, a place of truth for whoever wrote that. Sure. No, I think, you know, one of the great things about gaming right now is that in the past couple of years, it has become easier than ever to make a game. It used to be around the, you know, that when we started playing a game, it was extremely complicated to make a game. You had to program physics. You had to understand high-level math. You had to build your own engine and do all that stuff. These days, anybody can can sit down. If you have an idea for a game, you can sit down over a couple weekends, and you can probably put together a prototype that's pretty close to your idea. Um, and as a result, there's lots of amazing games out there. You know, the, the Itch.io uh, bundle for racial equality was released recently, and it's got 7,000 great games in it. They're all little indie games. You just go to Itch.io, and you can find a bunch of great games there. Um, and But that said, you know, that's all, that's all great, but it's only operating at a specific level. It only, it's only operating, like, below, you know, there's not as so much money there. It's, it's only the real giant hits that make any money in terms of that type of space. So to make a very 
popular and very successful game, you really need to like, you know, uh, follow certain conventions and you need to make sure, you know, you're aiming for such, again, talking about the, the core human experience, you're aiming for such a wide audience that you need to make sure that anyone who sits down to look at your game immediately understands what's happening, immediately understands what's going on. And that's the thing like Fortnite, you look at a game like Fortnite, which is hugely successful. And if you play it, it's it's very understandable. Like it's not necessarily your speed. It's not specific to what you want or what you're looking for or your sentiment, but it is very understandable and it is very accessible and very straightforward. Um, so yeah, it, once you know, a lot of people enter gaming or a lot of companies start out making like the game that they want to make and the game that they really have an interest in. And you know, my company sometimes uh, you know has to you know one thing we do is provide feedback to help games be better and help games be more successful. And I wouldn't say that I, I try to crush anyone's dream or anything like that, but definitely there are, you know, if you're going for such a wide audience, you need to make sure that certain things are accessible and certain things are clear. And uh, if your goal is to scare or frighten or confuse the player, people don't necessarily want that out of a game or want to do that. So it's like, you know, it's the same old artistic commercial balance that people have to keep all the time, unfortunately. So. Um, but yeah, that episode was great. And I like that the episode was so different from the rest of the show too. I like that they sort of took a risk and, uh, told this little story, just combined story in that specific episode. So I know enough about film and television to be really annoying to people when I'm watching films and television with them. Um, mm -hmm. like it makes me enjoy, like knowing how the sausage is made makes me enjoy them more, but it makes me insufferable to some other people. However, <laughs> To, it sounds to me like playing games with you would actually be a more entertaining experience. I feel like you bring uh, a certain amount of fascination to it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, this is just me complimenting. Yes, I guess. I was gonna, yeah, I was going to say yes is the answer to that. I No, I and I've thought about that. So obviously the work that I do, you know, it's all very confidential. I work for companies, I work on games before they come out and I can't really talk much about what I do or, you know, not necessarily what I do, but like I can't talk much about who I'm working with or who I'm working for because a lot of this stuff, I, now, now I am working on giant games and the odds are good that if you play a bunch of games, you've probably played things I've worked on. So I'm happy about that. But when we provide research to a company, it's designed to help them not, you know, tell anybody else what's going on or things like that. But that said, man, I yeah, I would love sometimes, you know, I would love someday to have the ability to sit down and like talk about a game. So I did a panel at PAX South a couple of years ago where we played games live in the panel and talked about them. It was me and a couple of other game journalists and we talked about them as we were playing them. And yes, I love spotting little details that developers have put in the game to help you understand. Like even there's a great video on YouTube of the Super Mario camera, the Super Mario World camera, and how detailed it is in terms of moving the camera around the screen. When you're playing, you notice none of that. You're just playing along and you Mario's always in the right place on screen and you always know where he's headed. But if you actually look at the mechanics of how the camera works, it's very detailed and very uh, intelligently designed in terms of how the camera is moving around and how, you know, the sense of movement that it creates. And I love stuff like that. I love little details in games. And there's a lot of stuff that developers do uh, that really, you know, allow players to understand what they're doing. And I talk about this too. So I do improv as well. And uh, with improv, it's interesting, although that's a fad that's kind of going away as well now. We're getting old, Brad. I feel, I feel like it comes <laughs> and goes. 
yeah, maybe it'll come back again. But I feel like all the stuff that we were really excited about, now kids are like, eh, the iPhone's old. All this stuff is dumb. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, improv, I always say, like, uh, to get really good at improv, you usually have to take, like, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of classes. Uh, and usually when improv – I've taught a little bit of improv, and when people teach improv, they say when you first start doing it, you're great because you don't think about it. Your head's not in it. You just kind of do whatever you want, and you're great, and it's super fun. And then your head starts getting into it, and then you start thinking about what you're doing, and you start overthinking, and then it starts getting clumsy, and then you have to like train yourself to get back to that initial like innocence that you had or that initial – play that you had. Mm -hmm. But the thing about improv is that you can take years and years and years of training to do it, but to watch it takes no training at all. The stuff that you're seeing on stage during an improv show, you pick up on it immediately. You pick up on when things feel weird or when people don't connect, you pick up on it when it's not funny or when things don't work. You don't need training to do that. And that's the same thing with games. You could train to make a game and make a brilliant game like Hideo Kojima, you could you could train and train and train to like understand how he guides the player's attention and how he balances things and does all that type of stuff. But to play the game, you need no training. It just works. It just connects up with what you're what you're doing. And I see, you know, obviously speaking to someone who wrote with me on TWW, that's that's Apple's philosophy the whole time. It's just works. It's just something that you and good software as well. Like it's just supposed to you know, it, the developer takes care of all that stuff in the background. You just understand from moment to moment to moment what you're supposed to do. So, yeah, yeah. The it just works philosophy. I feel like we should, right. for the sake of listeners uh, who aren't old enough, <laughs> TUAW was the unofficial Apple weblog. Uh, and it was a name Apple didn't like. Uh, yeah, yeah, because it had Apple technically in it, although. I think AOL downplayed the, the, they went for the acronym <laughs> by the end of it, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was actually where I met Mike was, uh, writing at, at Tua or as some, sure. some writers called it Tua, which I don't understand that pronunciation, but Mike, I think it was fun. Mike was likes all to blogs. say T-U-A-W because he likes all those syllables. That's more syllables yeah. than just saying no unofficial is okay. Fair enough. Tua. I I think I I think I helped Victor invent Tua, and then I just made fun of it. I, I always think it's <laughs> it's T U A W, but yeah, I don't know. Like that's the thing is like we, I wouldn't say we were you know the biggest site in the world, but we certainly had a community that really liked us. And occasionally in my even in my my current game industry thing, I'll mention oh I I used to work on on joystick or even WoW Insider. Sometimes I used to work on WoW Insider, and people go oh oh so there's some awareness there. But yeah, it's like this thing that we did that. <laughs> used to exist and then the world changed and things changed and now it doesn't exist anymore. And I, I think we're also headed – you can tell me what you think about this. I think we're headed back towards blogging. Obviously, like I, I think we're headed back towards like – well-written individual posts. You know, I think we, we, you know, uh, Facebook and the pivot to video, that's all coming up nowadays. And, and uh, certainly a lot of blogs, I kind of exited the blogging scene right as the pivot to video type of thing happened. But I think that there's, and you know, uh, email newsletters are coming back. Email newsletters are getting more and more popular. And I think people are really excited about like specific voices or specific groups, not huge social networks, but specific groups. I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think blogging is a thing that might return or I, I think idealistically, I want to say yes. Um, mm -hmm. My traffic on my blog, uh, despite having more name recognition now than I did 10 years ago, uh, my traffic is, it, it peaked and then has dwindled since. Um, yeah. It's harder and harder to sell advertising on blogs. Well, and podcasts aren't, aren't an easy sell either. 
Um, yeah. I, I feel true. like most of the Patreon money goes to video producers and uh, and the occasional podcaster. I shouldn't say occasional. It's a saturated market. But um, I, I, Medium demonstrates, I think, that individual voices still matter in, sure. in sure. writing. Um, mm-hmm. But Medium is as a whole not it's not a blog you know it's mm-hmm. not even individual blogs it's a conglomerate but it's true yeah i i really hope i i still read blogs i still use an rss reader every day i do too i think kids rss is really simple syndication it's it's a <laughs> it's a way to read read blogs yeah oh man i don't know how many kids you have listening to this but we'll explain everything <laughs> we'll go we'll go to your level at some point millennials um so do, do you uh, do you still write at all? Uh, I do. I mean, uh, as much as I'm not writing online, I uh, uh, well, uh, I will say that I don't write finished stuff. I have been taking up journaling the past few years, and I write a lot of stuff in terms of a journal. And I've also been like more interested as I get older, I guess, in keeping track of where I've been and what I've done. Uh, I have done a lot and I'm really excited about all the stuff I've done and all the stuff I'm currently doing, even, even though it's not as public as it used to be. But, uh, so, and and I think just, I think everybody does this as you get older, you kind of like go, well, what's my life mean? And where's my life headed? And what am I doing? So I, I have been like, uh, just personally writing a bunch of things and, and keeping track of stuff. And, uh, I'm always working on a book or two, like I'm always trying to put ideas into a file and, Usually I overjudge everything and I, ha- I, you know, I don't think it's worth sharing after the fact, but maybe someday. And I do want to start a blog. I mean, I do, I have my website and I have a blog set up. I just, and like I said, I have a couple of posts that I have ready to roll and I have ideas, but I just want to make sure, I don't know, like I, uh, when I, I don't know, I, I want to make sure that when I put stuff out there, A, I now kind of have a job to protect. Like I need to make <laughs> right. sure that I, you know, I, I, when I was a blogger, I could put whatever I wanted because that was my whole thing. But now it's like, well, I need to make sure that I'm not endangering my job in this sure. culture in this time. Not that I would be saying anything offensive, but I, you know, who knows what happens. And then I also, uh, I also, yeah, yeah I don't want to contribute to, we, we live in an era of misinformation. We live in an era of everyone yelling their opinion as loud as possible all the time. And I, I don't want to just yell another opinion out into the into the ether. I don't think that's helpful. I don't think that's useful for anybody. I don't think it's useful at all. It's selfish of me to just be like, okay, I'm going to do this. But that said, too, when I first started writing, it wasn't even at the newspaper. The first thing I started writing was my own personal site. I just posted every day. And that's how I kind of like got into the habit of writing and got into the rhythm of writing. And I didn't do that to make anything happen. I didn't do it with the whole career in mind. I did it because it was like, this is fun. I like putting yeah. stuff up. I like seeing responses to it. I like seeing people interact with it. And and now it's like, I almost think I'm overthinking it. I almost think I'm like, well, what should the voice be? And, and what would be most helpful? And it's like, maybe that's, maybe I need to just do it. Like maybe I need to just say, well, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I need to, I feel this drive to do it. And I'm just going to put stuff out. And if you're angry at it, tell me, or if you don't like it, tell me and I'll figure out from there. But I don't know. Maybe I need to take that risk again and just say, let's put the, let's put stuff out there and see what happens. But did you know that most of the stuff you ever wrote for weblogs is still there? Uh, yes, I'm still on Engadget. Yeah. I can still look at my old joystick posts on Engadget. Yeah. Uh, and and you uh, kindly when TWW was when well, 
I think when TWW was shutting down, you kindly wrote some scripts to pull as many posts as possible. Yeah. So I still have uh, archives of most everything I've written. Yeah, uh, it, it just not it's, that, it surprised yeah. a bunch of other two hour writers to find out that their articles still existed on the Internet. They thought they were all gone, rendered down to markdown files on their own computers. No, well, now that now we're all in gadget writers, so right, right, <laughs> which is a, still a blog that's still alive. So yeah, uh, no, I, I and I'm not surprised by that at all. AOL, I mean, they they should use the whole Buffalo. Why not? Like, yeah, I mean, now, they, they paid a good ten dollars for most of those posts. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also know when I, the contract that I signed uh, said that they own the post for ninety days. After that, I could do whatever I wanted with them. I always understood that if I wanted to publish, not that they would have ever wanted, but if I wanted to publish a book of my best posts, I could do that. So technically, I don't even know if they own those posts that they're putting up, but it's fine by me. I it's, didn't read that contract. Yeah, I, I, the contract that I have says we owned it, or AOL had rights for ninety days. And then after that, it was technically back to me. So technically, I, I own that content. But, you know, I'm never going to – I would never tell AOL to take them down. And I benefit more from having an Engadget byline and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, sure. But, uh, but, yeah, so it's still there. And I'm proud of it. I'm very proud of what we did. I think TWW was a great site. I think you did great work. I think Mike Rose and Kelly and and uh, Steve and, and Victor and everybody that worked on TWW. I think we did we – did, oh, Dave, Kalo, and all, I'm going to miss a bunch of people. But everybody did great work. Uh, Erica, even, uh, uh, she, even she, Erica. She, she her, well, she had her own tone. She very much was like doing her own thing and still doing her own thing. And she wouldn't argue with that at all, but, no. uh, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think we, I think we did terrific work and I'm proud of it. It's just, like I said, the world, we were a very, it was a very specific moment in time. I think like a very, you know, we, it was, it was the time where people wanted journalism and wanted those insights and mainstream journalism didn't have the capability to give those insights. And we did. And, and it was great. So I don't remember uh, how it happened, but, uh, last month we had a, an accidental to a zoom meetup. I heard about that uh, <laughs> after the fact, I don't know. I'll make sure you get uh, invited to the next one. If it yeah. Happens. I don't know what I, I don't know what I contribute. I don't want to, I don't want to invade too much. Cause the other thing on TWW. So I took TWW not, not because I didn't want to, cause I really did love Apple and I really did want to want to like write about it and understand them and, and understand the company. And I, I, I do think I still have a fairly clear understanding of the company, but, um, but I took TUAW because I wanted to get out of my current day job. I wanted to write full-time freelance. I wanted to work from home and write full-time freelance. And with just WoW Insider, with just Joystick, I couldn't do it. Yeah. When I got TUAW, when I was able to write on TUAW, that's when I had enough money that I could say, all oh, right, okay. And I remember the day. It's one of the best days of my life. It was a Sunday. And all my friends, I hung out with a bunch of friends. And they were like, we, they all had to go back to work the next day. And I was like, I do not. I get to wake <laughs> up, walk to my computer, and just start writing blog posts. And uh, I really enjoyed doing that. So I'm I'm very proud of that. But yeah, it, it definitely, uh, even as I was leaving, it became very tough for TWW and all the AOL blogs beyond like Engadget and Autoblog or whatever the top blogs were. It became very tough for AOL to justify keeping those up and keeping those running in the same way that they were, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I'll take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor this week, ExpressVPN. Uh, ExpressVPN lets you access the internet as if you're from a different country. Netflix has different shows and movies available depending on where you are. And with ExpressVPN, you can unlock thousands of new shows and movies from streaming libraries around the globe. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, and all of them offer a more secure way to browse. Uh, and I recommend having one 
Uh, I recommend ExpressVPN specifically because it's ridiculously fast. You can stream everything in HD quality with zero buffering. ExpressVPN is available on all of your devices, phones, laptops, tablets, even on your TV. And it works with many different streaming services, Netflix, Amazon Prime, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and many more. And you can choose from almost 100 different countries. And it's super simple to use. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location, connect, and then refresh the page and the show or the movie you want to watch will magically appear. I'm personally using this to watch Black Adder. Uh, I I don't know if anyone here is still fans of British comedy, but uh, not available in the US on Netflix, but I can tell it I'm from the UK and I can watch Black Adder. Um, my co-host on my other podcast, Overtired Christina, actually uses it in reverse when she's traveling in other countries, back when that was a thing, uh, and she can watch U.S. shows that aren't available in the country she's in. Um, if you use my link right now at expressvpn.com systematic, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com systematic. Thanks a bunch to ExpressVPN for their support of the show. All right. Well, that brings us to the top three picks. All right. I picked three things. Your listeners, I would assume, are extremely savvy, and I'm a little scared of uh, bringing them things that they've already heard about. But (laughs) I have three things that uh, I think either – probably not new, but at least will direct your attention to. I have two of them that I think are actually interesting and actually helpful, and I have one that is completely selfish and I just want to mention I think is fun. So, And with that – and the first one is uh, uh, the AI Dungeon. Have you heard of AI Dungeon? I have not. All right. GPT-3 is a uh, – I'm not an expert at AI, but GPT-3 is the latest iteration of the Open AI Initiative, which is an open source AI that is best in class for open source. I'm sure it does not compare to what the high-level companies are using, but it's, it's the best in class open source AI you can come across. Uh, there's a game called AI Dungeon that the newest version of it uses the GPT-3 engine or the GPT-3, whatever the term is, the GPT-3 structure, whatever. And uh, it is, to me, incredible. Now, it's a text adventure. So if you're used to playing graphical games, it, it may, you know, it's already a throwback. And it is not perfect. If you play it for five, ten minutes, you will start to see the flaws and start to see all, all the stuff in it. But the basically it is an AI that builds a text adventure as you play it. Essentially, you can tell the game anything and it will build out the story and tell and respond to you to whatever you want to do. So if you want to cast a spell, you can tell what spell you want to cast and it will tell you what happens when you cast that spell. If you want to go talk to a king, if you want to go talk to a beggar, if you want to go talk to a maiden, you can do it. And it is an AI built text adventure that, you know, in the past, there have been some AI text adventures that have just been okay. This one is the one that I has been the best I've seen. It is really phenomenal. And I've always had throughout all my work in gaming, I have this, this idea, this like golden idea that's been sitting in my head and I'll share it because ideas are free. Uh, implementation is the hard part. Um, but I've had this idea of like a game that just responded to the way that you interacted with it. So like Skyrim, if you play The Elder Scrolls Skyrim, there's a whole world for you to wander around in and you can go do whatever you want. But the world doesn't change. The world's persistent from game to game to game. You wander around the map. The quests are all pre-written. Like, it's all persistent. 
But I think, and No Man's Sky has messed around with procedural generation and procedural things like that. There is a future where we will play a world run by an AI that will basically generate itself according to what we do. So if you want to go pick flowers in Skyrim, the game will generate more types of flowers and more types of flowers to find. If you want to fight enemies, the game will generate more types of enemies. And if you play a certain way, it'll generate enemies that counteract that play style or support that play style. If you want to talk to people, it will generate more and more people to talk to and more and more people to talk about. And if you want to read books, it'll create more books. Like it's an ever, you know, the AI, that AI will, AI is going to change a lot of things, but it's definitely going to change game creation and game development. And AI Dungeon is the first iteration I've seen of that that really makes me excited about what AI generation looks like and what it's going to be. Right now, it takes a lot of people, a lot of time to create a lot of different models for a game like Skyrim or a game like The Witcher or things like that. But in the future, you will tell an AI, this is a table, and the AI will kick back 600 tables in different ways and different types of yeah. instruction, things like that. So check out AI Dungeon. The, uh, there is actually a pay level to it. like that You can pay to actually play it for a long time, but there is a demo available online, and it's well worth playing through. And when you think back to like Eliza, where AI started and, and, and interacting with computers started, and then this – We've made huge leaps, and man, like I said, AI is going to change a lot of stuff, but it's definitely going to change gaming. And AI Dungeon is the first indication of that, where it's like this is something's really happening here. So check that out. Did you play a lot of uh, text adventures when you were a kid? Yes, many text adventures. I wrote a text adventure on a TI eighty five calculator while I was sitting <laughs> in school. I wrote, I, I've written text adventures. Uh, there's also, you know, like I said, it's much easier to make games than ever before. There's very easy text adventure engines to load up. Uh, I'm blanking on on what the big one's called. There's a very easy one to write in. Twine. Twine is a great text a text adventure editor. So if you've ever wanted to make your own text adventure, go check out Twine. Um, my second pick here is something that you've probably heard of, which is called Notion. Have you used Notion at all? The note-taking app? Yes, yes. I've been a fan of Evernote for a long time. I've been a big Evernote user for a long time, but I have never once paid for Evernote. And maybe I should feel guilty about that, but I've used Evernote a long time without paying it. I found Notion earlier, I think later last year, I found it for the first time and I paid it. I started paying within the first two weeks. Like it, it's it's amazing. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it's the best thing we'll see. Like I said, I think we're heading back towards like voices in text or voices in articles. And I think we're heading towards like a revolution. Like, every, you know, the big picture is like Web 1.0 is just hyperlinks and being able to link things. Web 2.0 is flash and colorful graphics and interacting with the web in different ways. Web 3.0 or, or where I think we're headed next is like returning to text, but richer text and meaningful text and more linked text and linked information. And Notion is a great way to like link information and create linked databases. If you are a hardcore coder or a hardcore Excel user, maybe it won't be complicated enough for you. Like the, it's a little too simplified, I think, and a little bit too, you know, uh, hands on. And, and there's definitely a lot of things I'd love them to do for it, but they just haven't gotten around to it yet. So I think there's definitely improvements to be made. But I, I love using Notion and I love linking all the, the different things I'm working on and all the different tasks I have and everything I'm trying to keep track of in my head. Like it's really cool to like have a database that also uses articles, that also uses hyperlinks, that also has some coding connected to it. And it's really it's really neat. I really like uh, Notion a lot. And Notion is fairly popular these days. So I'll also recommend – this is a, a 2A recommendation. Uh, there's a site called Rome Research which is another site. Have you used that one? I have, yes. Okay, uh, there you go. It drives me nuts. Okay, yeah. It's another thing where I think there's definitely many improvements to be made, but uh, it's also like, 
putting thoughts down and then automatically linking them or automatically keeping track of them as you go. So I'll, I'll admit that it mostly drives me nuts because uh, people, because I'm working on a note taking app and ah, okay, the most frequent uh, feature requests I get are things that Rome does, but they don't make sense in another app that wasn't built up with the idea of of blocks and backlinks and everything. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. So I have to constantly field those. Uh, do you know who Ted Nelson is? I do not know Ted Nelson. He was he, he Tim Berners-Lee, Ted Nelson. They kind of had divergent ideas of what the internet should be. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ted, one of the last episodes I did before the hiatus was with Ted Nelson. Mm. He, he had this idea of what the web should should be and what hyperlinks should be and and micro attributions and micro payments and the way things could work in a truly like egalitarian uh cool internet age it, you you would enjoy it you you would enjoy a look at what web 3.0 could have been or could be sure yeah yeah i'll check it out i think i mean i think that's it i think we despite all the terrible things going on you know, illiteracy used to be a major problem in the world. It is not. Everyone now reads and writes and can understand each other. Even if they're just using emojis, they can at least understand each other. And that is really a result of the internet. That's a result of us connecting up and, and the internet being such a required skill that illiteracy has almost completely disappeared, which I think is awesome. Like as much as, as many terrible things are happening, there there are plenty of terrible things going on in the world. Uh, illiteracy is really coming around and and that's what excites me about these new types like Rome and, and Notion and I'm excited to see what you're working on. Um, but like I, I think we we're we're moving to an age where we we have access to all this information and we just need to make sure it's as organized as it can possibly be. And so the next step is not putting stuff online because we definitely have a lot of stuff online. The next step is making sure that the best way to find stuff is not necessarily Google. Like right. it's something that, you know, some sort of easy, you know, organization or some sort of some, some, some lining, lining things up in the right way. And again, going back to gaming, gaming is very good at using our evolutionary cues to guide us in this, the ways that developers want us to play the game and sort of teaching us the rules of interacting with things. I think we can build rules to interact with text and information that are clearer than what we currently have on the internet. So I right, agree. big stuff there, but yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing is very selfish. Uh, it is something that I love and I don't know if anyone else will love it, but it is, is, is the show, the TV show legends of tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I love superhero stuff. I love superhero movies. I love heroes and comic books in general. And I think that the CW is doing some really wild stuff. We talked about art and commercial. I am a big fan of like, how can you make really interesting art commercial? And how can you, you know, make commercial, you know, how can you commercialize art without losing the core of it, without losing the vision that the people have for it? I think Legends of Tomorrow is a wacky, wild TV show. It is very pop culture TV in 2020. Like, how can you make a show? I kind of harken back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is a show that I loved. And it's like, how can you make a wild, wacky, sort of subversive, but also very popular show on TV? And Legends of Tomorrow is that show. It's part of the Arrowverse, which is the Arrow show on CW and The Flash. And now Supergirl is part of it. And DC is kind of combining all their TV properties into one. But Legends of Tomorrow specifically is like, 
the first few seasons are pretty standard superhero stuff, but then by the third or fourth season, it gets way, way off the deep end, and you, it just it goes insane. It's literally insane what's happening on the show every week, and it's because and and it's also like very you know there's a lot of uh, you know uh, different types of community. It very it makes a, a commitment to be very diverse. Uh, it makes a commitment to show like other types of sexuality, other types of points of view. Like I think it's I think it's wonderful. If you don't like superhero stuff, you will be tired of the show. You're not interested <laughs> in it. If you if you're if you don't like dumb TV or you don't like you know serialized Buffy the Vampire Slayer type stuff, you will not be into it. But if you if you want to see what pop culture TV looks like, it's very it's so subversive. Like from moment to moment, it is designed to grab the biggest audience possible because it's still network television. Sure. But also introduce these ideas that are really deep and like the you know the the best comic books play with really deep social identities and re- really deep social ideas. And this show is also doing that, but in a way that also includes like vampires and pirates and demons and just. Ton and time travel. There's so many wild little time travel, like Star Trekky ideas in this show. It's super fun. So that's it's a little selfish because, like I said, if you don't like superhero shows, you'll watch one episode and be like, "This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen." But if you enjoy the wackiness of a superhero show, uh, Legends of Tomorrow is a great thing. And I'm in I'm in season five right now, and uh, it's I just love it. It's probably my favorite thing. Well, it's probably not the best thing on TV, but it's probably my favorite candy. Uh, uh, yeah. Cotton candy type thing on. No, TV. this yeah. looks it looks interesting. I think I had originally scrolled past it because it looked corny. It but, is corny, but it after, is corny. <laughs> after this description, I definitely want to check it out. Yeah, it's. I will say the first two seasons. So if you really are, if you're really well, here's the thing: if you want to see whether you're into the show or not, you can go on YouTube. I believe there is a uh, there's a fight between two giant CGI creatures. I, I don't know what the actual. I, we'd have to. Maybe we can. I can send it to you, and we can put it in a show link or yeah. something like that. But there was a fight with two CGI creatures that became a vi- like a viral video for a little while. If you watch that fight and you go, "This is a show I want to watch," you'll love this show. If you watch that fight and you're like, "I can't believe this exists on American television. What what dumb stuff is this?" Is uh, then you probably won't like the show at all. But I will, I'll send you the video. We can uh, you can link it out. But just watch that little like CGI fight. And if you think that that's something you're into, you will definitely be into Legends of Tomorrow. And I think it's great, too, because I want to support it. It's it's it is a mainstream network TV show, so it doesn't like need my support that much. But it 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 it, it especially in 2020 in the Trump administration era, it is doing things that uh, that, you know, other network shows uh, uh, wouldn't necessarily, you know, wouldn't necessarily want to do for a mainstream audience. It's really it's really putting itself out there for better or worse. I really I really like that show a lot. So. So my uh, my TV watching has included this uh, this dedicated drive that my girlfriend and I have to go back and watch Star Trek from the beginning, mm. and mm-hmm. we're we're into season two of T- TNG now. But yeah. it, it is amazing how some of those hold up over time. It is great. And it's great. Both the characters that they built, like it's such great character work, both in terms of acting and in terms of writing, like all those characters are so specifically drawn and have their own specific role. And it's also great from like a, a, a writing perspective, like every episode really does tackle a, a theme, tackle an issue. Like you can argue that it, it it's very episodic and that the show starts and ends the same way, but it. Yeah, and and that's what this show does too. And in fact, uh, Legends of Tomorrow in the later seasons has a Star Trek. They have a bunch of homages to old shows and old media, 
and and it does have a couple of Star Trek homages because it's like, of course, you can't make an episodic hour-long sci-fi TV show on TV these days and not realize that the next generation is basically what created that form and what set off that form, I think. That's so, interesting because um, like what I love about a lot of sci-fi is that it's able to take social issues of today mm-hmm. and abstract them in a way where people don't have to look at them with the same emotional attachment that they look at modern issues that they they're facing or have opinions about. And instead of being Mm -hmm. a race thing, it's actually like a species issue. And how are we treating this in, in this off world situation? And um, I haven't seen as much of that in superhero stuff, but maybe I'm missing. Uh, I mean, definitely like Marvel movies, they've played around a little bit with it, but not hit it hard. Like Marvel movies are designed to make money. So they're yeah. not, <laughs> they're not designed to say something they're designed to make money. Uh, so uh, yes, I think it doesn't hit as hard as it should. X-Men is a little bit closer, but even then the X-Men movies are again, trying to make money. They're not trying to like tell a story of outsiders, things like that. Mm. So yeah, I think they could hit it hard. I mean, the comic books did do that because in the seventies and eighties, no one cared what, I mean, comics were making enough money, but they weren't making so much money that anyone cared what was in there. So sure. writers could write all kinds of fun things and all kinds of interesting stuff. And we are kind of seeing, you know, in the adaptations of those stories, we're seeing some of that, that stuff come out. But you're right. I, I, I wish that, I mean, Doom Patrol is a show that does kind of like deal with a lot of those things. The boys on Amazon is another superhero. Oh, I one love that kind the of, boys. Yeah, it's great. It deals with some darker stuff and some sort of that, some of that thing. So there's some of that in there, but, but yeah, the mainstream superhero stuff, I mean, it's just designed to be, it's designed to be something, I mean, this is another fascinating thing. The Marvel movies are designed to be successful, not just in the U.S. audience, but on a worldwide scale. And that's why they, the story, it's melodramatic. They're, they're drawn so broadly that whether you speak Chinese or whether you speak English or whether you speak Taiwanese or whatever language you speak, you can recognize what's happening. You know that Loki's bad. You know that Captain America's good. Like, it's very clear from the beginning. Um, so that's what the Marvel movies are. And I like them for that. Like I do like, I mean, the Rooster brothers are very, are brilliant in the way that they can really express characters and really express stories very quickly and very directly to anybody who can understand. So that there's a, there is a certain sort of brilliance there, but you're right. It doesn't really tackle the issues that we wanted to tackle necessarily. Um, uh, there was something else I was, Oh, I was going to ask if you've seen devs. Have you seen devs? Haven't. Okay. it's, It's on my, my list. Yeah, yeah. I can't it's even remember what service that, that's on, but it's on FX. It's the director of Ex Machina, and it is a limited series. Although I think they're making a second season, but it's a limited series about uh, Nick Offerman, who plays like a Mark Zuckerberg type, who uh, runs a very secret experiment at his not actually Facebook, but probably Facebook company, basically. And it is very sci-fi and very abstract and wild and interesting and maybe not super successful all the way around, but, but visually really impressive and really wild. And also what he's dealing with in terms of like, you know, tech's responsibility in terms of the world. And also, you know, the, the general computer idea, like the, the sci-fi idea and the technology ideas that they put in there, it's really fascinating. So uh, yeah, when I think of you and your work and all the things that you think about, I, I, devs is probably the one that I think is most most specific and you might you might like a lot so did you know i have a show with christina warren now i did i saw that i have not heard it yet um well we had 80 some episodes it also went on hiatus at the same time as systematic um Mm -hmm. but but it is starting back up at the same time as systematic Ah, too and we talk tv a lot so i'm gonna make sure she's also watching devs so we can bring this up yeah sure yeah 
It's great. I mean, Nick Offerman is excellent in it. And the lead actress is also, I forget her name, unfortunately, but she is amazing. She's, she's, she's really incredible in that show. She had, she played a bit part in Ex Machina. She was the other, the other robot. Uh, and now I feel so bad. That I forgot her name because she's so good. But, uh, but yeah, it's a great show. Uh, Allison Pill is also in it. She's excellent in it. Um, and uh, it's good. It's really good. And it's, it's also, it's, it's well-written. I think maybe there's some issues I have with the writing, but uh but yeah, again, like the 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 way it looks at tech companies specifically is really fascinating. And like, what is the responsibility of these people who have billions and billions and billions of dollars? Like, what is their responsibility? And you know, is it is it selfish of them to pursue their own dreams in the name of making the world better or whatever else tech companies use to justify their own existence? So, Sonoya Mizuno. Yeah, Sonoya Mizuno. She's excellent. Uh, really great in the show and, and her character takes such an arc and so many turns and she still makes it believable somehow. Like she still does such a good job of like making it work, even though you're like this, there's, there's no way all this happens to her, but it, it, it works. You believe it. So I was, uh, I was at a toy store last night to celebrate my, my birthday party a couple weeks. Oh, happy birthday. Hey, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, uh, they had in their curiosity shop, they had a section of, candles fashioned after the uh the virgin mary candles that you see huh. in like uh mexican grocery stores i think it's a catholic thing but i associate it with mexican grocery stores anyway they had a, they had a candle of nick offerman uh specifically ron sure. swanson but i i, I almost <laughs> bought that i did not though i just came home yeah. with a coffee mug because i know i'll actually use that i would say there is there a larger theme in here about like uh, us losing religion and needing icons <laughs> or is it just a dumb fun parks and rec candle that someone made that's probably an, just that's a dumb another show candle. all right well let's see people can find you at mike shram.com uh two, sure. two m's and shram anywhere else you want to mention uh yeah i'm on twitter i still post stuff on twitter uh for some reason i mean I, I, again i'm trying to to be as good as i can but i i I don't know if my voice is really worth it there, but I, I definitely try to signal blast when I think it's most valuable, when I think it's most important. A lot of indignation, just like everybody else. A lot of a lot of just shock at, at what's happening in this country and what's going on with the world and all that stuff. And I hope I'm I hope I'm doing everything I can. I I, I really you know I, I a few years ago I was really shook by what happened and and the way social media was used, and I, I'm I'm trying to focus locally and do everything I can around me to make sure that the world that I exist in uh, is as good as it can possibly be. So I really, I really hope that I'm doing that. So it's not so much that I'm online as much anymore, but yes, please do follow me and you may see blog posts on, on my website soon. I also wanted to make sure that the first post I put up was not the post that we all used to joke about as bloggers, which is the post where you go, I definitely will be writing more here soon. And then it's <laughs> three Steve, years old. Steve, so. Steve Sandy was the only person that was ever true of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he actually did uh, keep writing soon. And we were Five like, more yeah, times great. that day. Yeah. Yep. All right. Um, and, and that's Mike Schramm on Twitter, right? Yep, just Mike Schramm on Twitter. Very consistent. I appreciate that. All right. Well, it was great catching up with you. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for helping too, inaugurate right? season two. Yeah, I, I'm congratulations to Merlin Mann, but I'm also very... <laughs> 
I'm also very flattered, and and I hope we have at least another couple hundred episodes from you. I, I I always enjoy your work, and I always enjoy all the things that you do. So thanks very much for that. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Systematic. Check out more episodes at systematicpod.com, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Find me as TT Scoff on all social media platforms, and follow Systematic at Systemcast S Y S T M C A S T on Twitter. Thanks for listening.